WHMP. And good afternoon, and thank you for joining us on the Afternoon Buzz. Uh, we have a real treat. We've been reading about something really important in the uh, arena of energy and providing energy for uh, all of our needs in this country. And Brian Adams, I think you're going to help us understand that which I've tried to understand, and I, I think I know less than when I first started reading about it. Well, it's a really exciting topic that we're going to talk about today. Some say it's the holy grail of energy, and the topic today is nuclear fusion. And a month ago, something really exciting happened down at the Department of Energy Lab, the Lawrence Livermore National Lab in California, where they did a remarkable thing, which was fuse two atoms together and actually take create more energy than was used in the fusion process and if that doesn't make any sense, well, we have someone in the studio today who we'll hopefully try to make sense of that. Sukesh Aghara is the Associate Dean of Graduate Studies at UMass Lowell. He is the Director of the Nuclear Engineering Program, as well as the Integrated Nuclear Security and Safeguards Laboratory at UMass Lowell. Uh, Sukesh, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Brian and Buzz, for having me on your show today. So nuclear fusion, what is it, and what happened a month ago? So, a lot of exciting things going on with fusion. Um, I mean, we discovered fusion, or understood fission, uh, fusion uh, way back in the 1900s, and started to build our first prototype reactors called Tokomax in the 1950s, 1960s. But what happened a month ago, which is why it's so exciting, is that we had a positive gain. Gain is the way that you basically characterize how much energy went into causing the fusion reaction and how much energy was received out from the reaction. A total of 2 million joules of energy was put in to cause the fusion reaction, and through measurements and confirmation, 3 million joules were produced. So basically a gain of 1.5, which is a significant positive direction in which reality of getting fusion energy becomes... And that had never happened before. It was always a lot more energy going in to trying to fuse atoms together than was coming out. So there are two main ways in which we confine plasma and hence two broad categories of fusion reactor technologies. One in which we use magnetic fields, which is the tokamak type reactors, where you use an electromagnetic field to contain your plasma. The other way, which is the way that this uh, demonstration was about a month ago at Lawrence Livermore National Lab, is called the inertia containment fission, fusion. So the way that this works is you essentially have very powerful lasers, uh, in this case 192 lasers focused onto a very, very small, one millimeter small deuterium tritium, which are two different isotopes of hydrogen, and all of that energy is focused in that very small volume, which then causes the fusion to occur. And fusion is the combination of atoms. Is that right? Or fusing, pushing together? That's right. In fact, uh, in, in, in conversations, people often confuse fission and fusion because both of them are nuclear reactions. Um, and they also fall on the same binding energy curve that most nuclear engineers and modern physics um, teaches. So essentially, if you look at hydrogen and low Z elements, everything below iron, they... In the periodic table. In the, in the periodic table, uh -huh. correct. Uh, everything below iron essentially has less 
energy per nucleon when they sit together inside the nucleus. Everything above iron, especially heavy Z materials like uranium and actinides, they also have about 7 to 7.7 MeV per nucleon of energy. Iron and iron block elements, which is why they are the maximum that you see, have the most amount of energy per nucleon. So essentially, nucleons are protons and neutrons that sit inside the nucleus. So what does that mean? Essentially, that means that they are most favorable configuration inside the nucleus and has the most stability and hence the benefit of sitting in that configuration of proton-neutron combination. I, I have to interrupt because uh, I... I'm a listener right now, and I'm mm -hmm. sure listeners are really confused. I'm going to just backpedal a little bit. Please. When there is a, an atomic weapon used, mm -hmm. exploding, isn't there a whole lot more energy released than there was going into it? Correct. So that thank you, Buzz, for helping me with that, right? So now when you want to cause a nuclear reaction, which is going back to Brian's point, if I have two isotopes of hydrogen. Essentially, specifically in this case, that was used in Lawrence Livermore National Lab was a deuterium, which is essentially one proton and one extra neutron, right? So it's a heavier isotope of hydrogen, which is most commonly occurring, one, one, which is just one proton. So hydrogen atom that we know of has a proton and an electron. A deuterium, which is an isotope of hydrogen, has a proton and a neutron plus an electron. A tritium, which is a third isotope of hydrogen, has one proton and two neutrons. So it is a heavier isotope of hydrogen. So when you fuse a deuterium and a tritium together, you essentially form helium and extra energy. A, and so you brought up, Buzz, this nuclear weapon. So essentially a fission reaction is what we first used in the uranium and plutonium nuclear weapons. When you use those weapons and create a, what is called an implosion device, you essentially take the energy of fission, compress something in the middle, which is your deuterium DT, and cause a fusion. So that fission-fusion combination, it is what is called a, a much higher megaton release. And, it's, and that's an uncontrolled reaction that is as a, opposed to a controlled reaction to make electricity. Exactly right. So what happens in a hydrogen bomb, which is the most biggest bomb you can make, that is a fission-fusion reaction in combination. In a controlled form, which is what we saw in Lawrence Livermore National Lab, instead of using fission, what we use is lasers to focus that energy and create compression that compression initially hits the tungsten target, which produces X-rays that then concentrate onto the DT, and the DT then... Those are the isotopes of yeah, hydrogen. deuterium and tri uh, tritium, which then ignites, and when they ignite, they essentially are now in a self-contained reaction, but it is controlled. It is controlled for a short amount of time because we have a confinement and that confinement is caused because of this controlled temperature pressure conditions by maintaining that those lasers. And the whole purpose of doing this is to create heat, to boil water, to make steam, to turn a turbine, to rotate a magnet along a coil wire, which makes electricity. So the whole back part of this is the same in any kind of 
uh, whether you're burning gas or coal or, um, or oil or even a nuclear fission. The whole point is to boil water, and that's the whole point in a nuclear fusion reactor as well. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. So essentially, we've perfected as mankind a way to take some form of a heat generation source, right? Most of these are chemical reactions, the ones that you talked about, you know, burning coal, oil, uh, even wood. The nuclear reactions, the, the density, the amount of energy density is millions of times higher than what you would get from a chemical reaction, which is why we're really interested in controlled fusion and fission. And it does not go through combustion like the carbon-hydrogen combination and hence does not produce carbon dioxide and or any other greenhouse gases, which is why we are so interested in perfecting controlled fission and fusion reactions because this will be a way in which we would have zero emission uh, sources. So that's why people are so excited about this. I mean, it's electricity without greenhouse gases. Is it, is it going to happen? I mean, I, I taught... Uh, environmental science at Greenfield Community College for 20 years. Every semester, a student would come, you know, Brian, Brian, have you heard of fusion? It's going to save the world. I'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah. And this happens every year. Now, something has changed in that more energy is being released and went into it. But what what's the prognosis? How, how much time do you give this to actually being a real thing? So fusion and fission, both of us are all part of the nuclear world. And in the nuclear world, we always say the fusion guys are about 40 years away from, from reality. I think that number has changed to 20 years. Uh, I think we're going to be able to produce a controlled fusion reaction that could be coupled to producing grid-connectable energy. Now, I'm not saying that we will have 100 of these reactors connected to the grid. However, we will get close to and be able to demonstrate a fusion reactor that produces electricity and connect. And Sukesh Agara, I wanted to ask you, when I read about this a month ago today, apparently, um, I read that um, you just mentioned helium. Helium is what comes out of the sun's, whatever that is. Helosphere. It's a gas. Fusion reaction. That's fusion reaction? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that that's what we're creating is the same kind of energy that the sun creates through this mechanism that's going to, as we get better at it, use a whole lot less energy to make this thing happen. That's my understanding. So your understanding is exactly right. So there are several fundamental forces. So what we are trying to do with this fusion reactor is essentially create the energy that the stars, the closest one of which is sun, produces their energy from. The big difference is that the, the sun and the stars use gravitational force to contain the plasma we don't have that kind of gravitational force to control the plasma. So we have to use either electromagnetic forces, which is the one kind of reactor containment, or lasers to contain that plasma. The difference is huge between fission and fusion. Uh, Fission is what the 101, you said, nuclear reactors are doing now. They are splitting apart the atom uh, rather than fusing it together the way fusion would work. Uh, When we come back... We're going to talk a lot about the byproducts of uh, fission, why that is problematic, and then um, reconnect with this whole promise or premise of hydrogen. We're talking with Sukesh Aghara. He is the director of the nuclear engineering engineering program in the Integrated Nuclear Security and Safeguards Laboratory at UMass Lowell. So stick with us, and we will be right back. 
He's dampening my confusion. Ooh. <laughs> This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Here comes the sun, here comes the sun, I say, it's all right. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Voting as well as early voting is the way to go. It shows that we trust the voters. They know why they need an early ballot. They know why they need an absentee ballot. It's not up to government to decide if it's a legitimate reason or not. The voters should get to choose. So this, I think, is a huge advance. 101.5-1400-1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. You want the very best opportunities for your child. Given the amount of time children spend in school each day, you want your child to be inspired, to be engaged, to love going to school. At Bement, each student experiences this every day. The Bement School in Deerfield is a close-knit community of students from around the valley and across the globe. Kindergarten through ninth grade, learning from each other in the classroom, rooting for each other on the athletic field, and celebrating each other on the stage. We are local, we are global, and our differences make us stronger. We interact face-to-face, -face, share meals together every day, and open doors for one another. The true essence of your child's time at Bement is preparing for a life of integrity, of significance, of joy. Financial aid and transportation are available to help make a Bement school education possible. I'm Kim Laughlin, Director of Admission. Please contact me or visit our website. Bement will be the best investment you make in your child's future. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you. Until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. Want to support the kind of talk you hear on the Afternoon Buzz? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And you'll be supporting the local news, Valley Talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. So this incredible thing happens to me when I listen to this depth of science, which is I'm really interested and I come to a point when I have a great explainer like a Brian Adams or a Sukesh Agara, and about five minutes later, I forget it. 
So before we're through, we want a bottom line. So that, that's what I'm looking for. What can I take away from this that I will remember Brian Adams? Well, I think one thing is, the, is this hope and promise of greenhouse gas emission-free electricity. And how can we do that? And we have that in wind. We have that in solar. Um, but, we, but we rely so extensively on large fossil fuel plants, oil, gas, coal, um, and nukes as well to provide this electricity. And in the case of fossil fuels, it's, you know, it's very carbon dioxide emitting energy. And that's such a problem. So it's this rush now to find a way to produce electricity in a non-greenhouse gas emitting way. And fortunately, we have Sukesh Aghara to join us this afternoon. He is the director of the nuclear engineering program at UMass in Lowell. And let's get back to this fission versus fusion thing, because I think there is a lot of confusion about that. Sukesh, the problem with fission, splitting apart the atoms, is that the byproducts are incredibly toxic. Radioactive plutonium, one of the most dangerous substances in the world. How is that, what are the byproducts from fusion and how are they different from fission? Right, so we understand, uh, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier, about fission being easier to control, or at least we've perfected the controlling of that and have had deployed many reactors to produce about 20% of clean carbon-free energy in the United States. Uh, the challenge with fission is that ultimately the uranium atoms likes to split into almost equal size atoms that also have that good energy per nucleon configuration at about 118 uh, atomic mass number. Many of these will then go through some kind of radiation emissions like beta and gamma particles that will then give them de-excitation to get to stable isotopes. And that takes a long time for some of them. So some of them take a long time. However, majority of the fission isotopes that are produced uh, would decay away in less than seven to 10 years. So majority of the radiotoxicity, a significant reduction happens in the first 10 years. However, you do have several isotopes that are radiotoxic that could go into 100 years. And then you have long, very long-lived isotopes. So the longer-lived the isotope, the less emission it actually has. So a 10,000-year isotope is radioactive, but it is only emitting radiations very sporadically. So yes, there is a little bit of that misconception. It'll be around for 10,000 years, but it's 10,000-year isotopes I'm less worried about. It's the shorter-lived isotopes that emits more radiation. And what about the byproducts of fusion? Are they radioactive as well? So... Ideally, um, and we were talking about this during the, uh, the break, deuterium and tritium, which are our two initial uh, ingredients for causing fusion. And those are two isotopes, isotopes of hydrogen. Isotopes of hydrogen. Deuterium is stable. Tritium is actually radioactive. Not bad because it's a beta emitter with a 12-year half-life. So what does happen is that you will have essentially neutrons produced through this fusion reaction. These neutrons will then activate any of the vessels that the reactor is going to be contained in. So the activation products of fusion will be similar to the activation products in fission. But a big distinction, there is no radio fission products that fission produces that fusion will produce. So there will be a significant significantly reduced an absence of radioactivity from the actual reaction once the reaction stops. 
The, the two isotopes of hydrogen that are fused together, deuterium and tritium, where do you get those? Are they naturally occurring? So they are naturally occurring. Tritium is essentially achieved through a reaction from cosmetic natural rays that produces uh, tritium. The deuterium is just naturally occurring. The best resource for getting large amounts of deuterium would be from seawater. So there's about 40 grams of deuterium in seawater and 0.1 gram of tritium in seawater that we can harness. Once you get a reaction going, you can actually surround the reactor with a lithium blanket, and the lithium will continue to produce more tritium. And so in principle, a fusion reactor, once perfected, can be a breeder of its own fuel and continue forever in perpetuity because we have a lot of hydrogen and deuterium. Just by using seawater as the initial source of the two hydrogen isotopes? So seawater because essentially it's H2O, and that H is any, it could be any isotope of hydrogen, right? So you have ample resource in seawater, and there is also lithium in seawater. So that's why we are really focused in looking at seawater as a source for deuterium, lithium, and potassium. Which is tritium. plentiful. Which is plentiful. Yeah. Um, one thing I just have to get on the air, because I may never have a chance to do it again, is Einstein's famous equation, E equals mc squared. E is energy. M is mass and C is the the the, the, the speed of light. So so the 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 whole rule laws of thermodynamics. Energy can neither be created nor destroyed. But here you are with that M, the M C squared, changing mass into energy, multiplying that by the speed of light squared, which is just this enormous amount of energy. Mm -hmm. um, so are are you optimistic? Do you think this is the solution? This is what's what's going to save us from greenhouse gas chaos and climate catastrophe? I'm not just optimistic. I think there is no other way because we consume a lot of electricity. And as much as I, I want and I have solar panels on my household, I think renewable is absolutely in the mix. But the way that we consume electricity and the way that we will continue to increase uh, utilization of electricity, nuclear has to be in the mix. Um, and the way that we're going to be able to do that with fusion, even lower radiotoxicity, but even with fission, we have learned and operated for hours of clean energy. And I think that it would be a irresponsible for humankind to continue to use fossil fuels when we know we can use other forms of energy which are much higher density, thanks to Einstein's explanation of that thing from 1903. We've been talking with Sukesh Aghara. He is the Associate Dean of Graduate Studies and the Director of Nuclear Eng Engineering. And we are speaking of what happened a month ago when for the first time a controlled nuclear fusion reaction occurred in the Department of Energy Laboratory in California where more energy was created, if you will, then went into the fusion process, which is pretty exciting stuff. Wow. You know, Dan... The smell here in the studio, that's the smell of promise. Yeah. It's going to happen, Buzz. You think? I don't, I don't think. I'm almost certain now at this point. It's going to happen. And, you know, you said 20 years. I think that might be, you know, it might be 10, 15. It could be. I mean, when you start first seeing it roll out, it's probably going to be 20 years before maybe the major projects. Since when you have this amount of money and you've already gotten this breakthrough, 
It's a matter of time. Well, it's also a My question view. of policy and commitment. Yeah, and commitment and investment. Commitment from a government. Congress that can't even elect a speaker, but that's but another story. Is moving ahead. Science is marching ahead. Well, Speaking of science Newton. is a quantum leap. So I think yeah. it seems like we've been working on this for 70 years, but yeah. I think we're going to start to see some progress very quickly and exponentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sukesh, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Well, it was a pleasure to, to be here, and thank you for the thank opportunity you. to do, unwind I, this fusion thing. But I am, <laughs> who do we have in the afternoon? Oh, goodness, we have uh, Glenn Siegel is bringing in uh, a cellist, an extremely talented cellist. From uh, His name is Wayne Smith. He's from Shelburne Falls. He'll be here in a few minutes. So everybody, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, we got more talent. So... Sukesh and Brian, and then we have Glenn and Dan and Wayne Smith. I'm just in my glory here. Be right back. Stay with us. Effective passive this is the afternoon buzz with Buzz Eisenberg. First, 101.5 WHMP. To enter. Stone or tile floors and walls provide. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Governor Charlie Baker shared a goodbye video wishing the best for Governor-elect Maura Healey and thanking his constituents for eight rewarding years. Baker says he and Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito are deeply grateful. Both of us were amazed by the creativity, decency, and shared sense of purpose that we saw everywhere we went. Despite a myriad of political fights and distractions that were raging all around us, people here chose to focus on the work and it paid off. Baker also shared his hopes for the future. It is our fervent hope that your generosity never wavers. It is truly what makes you special, and it's the foundation on which we can continue to build great communities and a great commonwealth. God bless you. Governor-elect Maura Healey will be sworn in today. The East Hampton Planning Board is pushing a meeting back by a month to discuss plans for a $26 to $30 million mixed-use residential and commercial center at the former Tasty Top site off Route 10. The request came from the developer just a few hours before a public hearing was set to begin. The public hearing is now scheduled for February 7th. A 28-year-old Greenfield man has died after suffering a medical event while detained after being arrested Monday on potential drug charges. Shortly after arriving at the Shelburne Falls State Police Barracks, the man suffered a significant medical event and was transported to Bay State Franklin Medical Center where he died Wednesday morning. The Northwestern DA's office stated although there was no signs of foul play, the incident is being investigated by the Massachusetts State Police Detective Unit. Scattered rain showers this afternoon, a high in the low 40s. A few flurries or scattered snow showers overnight tonight, a low of 28 to 34. Rain and snow showers tomorrow, a high of 40 to 44. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Hey, it's Jason with the Weather Channel and SnowCountry.com. The Capital One Quicksilver card. Earn 1.5% cash back on every purchase. What's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. While some ski seasons require a little more patience than others, but cooler days and colder nights are within reach, and snowmakers and groomers will be back to work by the weekend. And we saw what they can do with just a few cold nights in a row just before the holidays. They'll be busy building bases, freshening up the surfaces, and digging down with the power tillers to keep the trail smooth and loose as the cold sets in again. Keep an eye on the grooming report. Watch for the runs that have had the most recent attention. They'll be in the best shape for weekend runs. 
Jiminy Peak, just over half dozen runs, nearly two dozen for Wachusett with action day and night. Stratton, 37 open ones, 35 of them getting a fresh groom for the day. About a half dozen runs open at Saskadena, six. Smuggler's Notch, 16, 15 of those freshly groomed for the day. And this report brought to you by Smuggler's Notch, Vermont, where family funds guaranteed. Visit smugs.com. Check out more at snowcountry.com. I'm Jason Dean. If your Spanish-speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among coworkers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100% of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. What's happening on Beacon Hill, in Washington, D.C., in outer space, and in the art scene in the Valley this weekend? Join us for our fish wrap, and when we speak with MTA President Max Page, and then Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid, and Artbeat correspondent Donabel Cassis. All this beginning Friday at 9 o'clock. Get in on the conversation. Bill Newman. Weekdays at 9. And again at 5. WHMP. News, information, and the arts. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And this is a part of the week that I always look forward to. It is a Take 5 segment. Glenn Siegel, always here with great guests. Who do we have today? Today we have cellist Wayne Smith. I'm excited. Cellist. Yeah, yeah. not too many cellists in the improvised music. Well, I, I'm just going to, it'll take me about 45 seconds to tell you when my son was eight years old, he studied cello and he used the Suzuki method, which meant that a parent had to play with him. So we would go in every morning at eight o'clock in the morning and um, three days a week. And I learned to play, first we started with Scotland's Burning, Scotland's Burning. And at <laughs> the end of the semester, I knew Masterpiece Theater. Dun, now, how did that go? Exactly. Only I can't <laughs> sing it as well as you can. <laughs> well, let me introduce uh, Wayne to our listening audience. He's uh, appeared as a soloist and chamber musician throughout the world. He's played with the New Jersey Chamber Music Society, the National Chamber Orchestra, the Manhattan Chamber Orchestra, and the Philharmonic of New Jersey, among other groups and was a featured soloist on the PBS series Musical Encounters. He's recorded and performed with such artists as Richard Smallwood, Smallwood uh, Anthony Crizan of the Spin Doctors, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and the Moody Blues. He's taught lessons and master classes at Amherst College, Salisbury State University in Maryland, and UMass. He did his undergraduate studies at the Eastman School of Music and his graduate studies at the University of Massachusetts. He's originally from New Jersey and now resides in Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts. I'm impressed by all of it, but the Shelburne Falls part really impresses me. Is that the me. best part? <laughs> <laughs> well, hello, Wayne, and thanks for being here. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, let me ask you about the cello. Have you always played cello? Have you played any other instruments? Well, I started uh, with violin and piano when I was about eight and started to switch to cello when I was nine. And it was just, I don't know, it's just a match made in heaven. I cannot get over the thing. It's been some time now, maybe 40 years. And uh, I just love it. Yeah, just love beautiful. It. 
And uh, tell us a little bit about your early music experience. Well, I grew up in Westfield, New Jersey, and fortunately, they offered free instrument lessons to everyone third grade and above. And so I started with violin in, in third the, grade. In a public school. In public school. As yeah. public schools should offer, right? Yes, I wish they all did. <laughs> I wish they all did. Um, so I started with uh, violin in third grade, and fourth grade switched to cello, and things just really took off for me. Um, at the same time, I was studying piano um, separately and privately outside of school, and that was my main instrument for quite a while. But around 14, 15 years old, I started to really enjoy the cello, and I began to study at the Manhattan School of Music, and um, later you know, d- decided on the stage of Carnegie Hall that this is what I had to do forever. Um, you know, maybe I fell for a little bit of uh, applause, <laughs> you know, the wonderful feeling of applause, and it kind of stuck with me, but it wasn't that. It was the voice that it gave me, and I felt like it was just, I felt like it saved my life. Mm. Wow. What do you mean by that? I mean, it was the thing that offset teen angst. It was the thing that offset loneliness. It was this part of me that was missing. Um, I didn't know it was missing until I found it. And it was a way that I could always express myself and be myself. And it wasn't a part of my a part of my culture, you know. Um, my parents had no had no idea about cellos. I grew up in a, you know, a very um sort of staunch Pentecostal church, you know, um black southern tradition. And uh, They knew about jello, not about cello. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> And, but they were always supportive, you know, my parents were more on the, you know, more lenient side, but it wasn't a part of our culture for sure. And they just drove me to the lessons and rehearsals and more lessons and bought cellos and I got lucky and, um, I feel so fortunate to have found it. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by musicians who are fluent in both European classical music and improvised music, um, Obviously, your classical studies came first. How did you enter the world of improvised music? Well, when I was, I went to Eastman School of Music for undergrad. And during that time, I was still playing a lot of piano and doing a lot of hand drumming. And I played um, a little bit of, uh, a little bit of recorder, but sort of in the Native American Navajo flute style. And listening to a lot of world music, it made me want to explore different genres on the cello and on the recorder and on the piano. And um, maybe as a relief from, you know, the rigors of classical cello study, I would do a lot of improvisation on the piano because there was, there didn't have the same uh, level of responsibility or frankly, the same level of baggage attached to it. And so it was a freeing experience to, to improvise on the piano. Plus the thing, you know, you can't really go wrong can't play out of tune. And if you do, it's not your fault. Um, and then I started to, you know, connect with some other students who were into improvised music. And we had a group of seven of us that would get together and just improvise. And we'd, we all played multiple instruments and we would just get in a big room and jam out. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, so you're moving to New York soon and uh, going to make your Broadway debut. Tell us about that. How did that gig come about? Well, it came about, I've been playing with the Harlem Chamber Players String Quartet for about four years now. And one of my colleagues in that quartet um, has been playing Phantom of the Opera for the last 13 years. And um, 
through her, I got connected. She actually was very sweet in that since Phantom is closing, um, uh, the director, he wanted her to come with him to his next show, which is Sweeney Todd. And so she, he, she had to submit a sample of her playing for his people to look at. And she was kind enough to include me in that. And she sort of snuck me into her audition. And one thing led to another. The conductor contacted me and asked me for some more samples. And fortunately, um, you know, they want to have me do it. So I'll be playing Sweeney Todd starting next month on Broadway. Wow. That's very exciting. Yeah. And that's, that's a full-time gig, right? It's full-time, but it's so part-time compared to everything I've done <laughs> until now. The last three years, I've, you know, I've been teaching at Amherst College and at Deerfield Academy. I was playing with the Portland Piano Trio up in Maine and driving there each week. I was doing maybe four or five concerts a month in New York with the Harlem Chamber Players while having a studio of about 20 students. And so the idea of this full-time job, I would say in quotes, um, that lasts, you know, three to six hours a day seems like luxury. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but it is a full-time spot. It is, you know, every day. Yeah. Yeah, so it's is it six or seven shows a week? Seven shows a week. Yeah. Over wow. five days. Going from the show in potholes to the Broadway pit holes, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so you have... Have you learned started learning the music? I haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure you'll pick it up quite fast. Um, so you're giving up your your place of residence in Shelburne Falls, so you're leaving the valley more or less. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Which is bittersweet. I um, I've never played for money, as it were. You know, that's sort of one of the great things about this profession. And also sometimes sometimes one of the difficulties is that we're doing what we love. And in this area, I've had a life filled with the things that I love. But it's, you know, as a freelance musician, it's, it's not quite sustainable without a huge amount of travel is what I found or, you know, a professorship somewhere. Um, so I, even though I do... Uh, you know, appreciate this opportunity very much to go to New York City and to be there and to be sort of in the center of one of the centers of the world for classical music and performing arts. Um, you know, I'll miss the community here and I'll sorely miss my students here. And, you know, um, I came to this area also because there's a great meditation center and I'll definitely miss that community but I know that that practice is also what will sustain me in New York. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Think how meditative Broadway is. <laughs> <laughs> or how you might need to meditate after playing there every night. Yeah. I think after 40 years of um, uh, doing something that saved your life, music, uh, as you said, saved your life, that a steady gig might be a really attractive thing to, to hold on to for a little while, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Glenn Siegel, as always, has brought in this incredible guest, Wayne Smith, the cellist. We're going to take a break and be back and listen to uh, Wayne's story and talk about music more right after these messages. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP.
skates cutting the ice and sticks pounding boards. The slap of the puck and a peel off the post. The chirp of the whistle and the blaring of the horn. Hockey is here. Tune in for all the sounds of the season right here on the UMass Sports Network. 101.5, 1400-1240-WHMP. Hello, this is Chandra Richardson, Senior Vice President and Operations Officer at Greenfield Savings Bank. When you switch to banking locally at GSB, you're choosing a bank that has been serving the needs of local residents, businesses, and communities for more than 150 years. We offer a whole host of services and benefits without the fees you get at a big bank. You'll love GSB's free checking with free online banking and free GSB mobile app, which lets you deposit checks from your mobile device. Plus, GSB Online Banking and the mobile app come with the Credit Center, which includes credit scores and credit reports, all for free. And the mobile app also lets you control your GSB debit card remotely from your mobile device. You can open your account online or at any of our offices. Switch to free and local at GSB today and find out how great banking locally can be. Greenfield Savings Bank. Greenfieldsavings.com. Member FDIC, member DIF. Mobile carrier charges may apply. Arts Night Out, the farmer's market moves in. Young Shakespeare, a chowder cook-off. What's going on? A look around the valley with provisions. Grow Food Northampton's winter farmer's market moves indoors, Saturday the 14th and 28th from 10 to 2 at the Northampton Senior Center. The Young Shakespeare Players East present Twelfth Night, January 13th and 14th at the Shea Theatre in Turner's Falls. And it's free. Arts Night Out, the second Friday of the month in downtown Northampton. The next one is Friday, January 13th. Comedy Cause, Teacher's Night Out, benefits the Literacy Project. Saturday, January 21st at the Academy of Music. You make chowder? It's a clam chowder cook-off. This Saturday at 3 at the Northampton Country Club. Bring two quarts of chowder in a crock pot. This is Jim Neal with What's Going On, a monthly look around at food and beverage, arts and music, and anything cool. What's Going On is presented by Provisions. Wine, beer, cheese at the foot of Crafts Avenue in downtown Northampton, in the Mill District in North Amherst, and now in the Longmeadow Shops. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Glenn Siegel here with Buzz Eisenberg and our guest Wayne Smith, who's a fabulous cellist who's been living in the Valley for many years and is about to leave for, I don't know if greener pastures is the right term because there's a lot of uh, concrete in New York City. Um, but we've been so blessed to have uh, Wayne here, and I've gotten a chance to work with Wayne uh, as a concert producer a few times. Um, in fact, the most recent time was with uh, Terry Janour, who was uh, our guest a couple of Thursdays ago on Take 5. Um, tell us how you met Terry. I met Terry at Amherst College uh, through Jason Robinson, who is a brilliant saxophone player and, you know, um, I'm sure your listeners know who he is in this area. He was also a guest uh, two Thursdays ago. Yeah. Yeah. And so he began this uh, a, a sort of a collective um, of five college faculty and community members um, to just get together and improvise. I think we did it maybe every other week or once a month just for no reason. Nothing recorded very much unless we did our own little side recordings, but just to get together and play for the sake of playing. 
Um, and sometimes people would bring in, you know, sketches for organized improvisation. Sometimes it was free improvisation. Sometimes it, it was, you know, it ran the gambit. And I met Terry at one of those sessions where she and Jason and I and Bob Wiener, a percussionist, um, got together to, to play. And I remember just being inspired so much by her freedom and just by her being so much herself. And that stands out to me as well because just a few days before I met her, um, I had gotten some bad news um, about the health of a family member. And even when I, I happened to have recorded that improv session, and I can hear that in the recording, but it was sort of this very um, vulnerable moment for me. And to hear how she filled the space with sound and how she, I don't know what was going on in her life at the time, but her vulnerability and genuineness was there for everyone to witness and partake in and enjoy. And it, she's taught me so much about playing because of that. I've had the privilege to play with her with um, quite a few times. She's We've done some things when she was you know, for, at the Augusta Savage Gallery, and she's also had me come do some things by myself and with uh, my electronic music partner in, the, in a group called Arctic Moth that I do with my good friend, Lysha Smith. Um, but more recently, she and, she's invited me to play in a sextet with her um, in her piece called Letters from Papa, which was inspired by some letters that her grandfather wrote to her mother um, while they were separated, um, separated distance-wise, you know, because of work. And, uh, you know, we're going to be playing that again, actually, a couple more times coming up this year. But that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of my history with her. Yeah. She's always been, uh, I don't know if she knows this, but she's quite the muse for me. Just oh, I aspire to her level yeah. of freedom oh, and comfort. Yeah, well, I'll tell her. <laughs> yeah, she's a dear friend of uh, of mine as well. And uh, Jazz Shares, which is uh, an organization that I'm part of, had uh, Terry with uh, a project called Portal. And so you were in a trio with Avery Sharp, which was yes. wonderful. And uh, uh, yeah, it was just so, so musical. Um, so you mentioned doing a lot of teaching at Amherst College and Deerfield Academy. Um, Tell us a little bit about your teaching philosophies and what kind of classes do you teach? Well, I teach mostly private cello lessons. At Deerfield Academy, I also do some chamber music coaching. And so far, I've had only a couple of students that were very interested in becoming musicians. Um, so I try to give them a way to connect with the instrument and connect with their sense of expression so that they can carry this through their lives as, as an asset. I don't want it to be further. There is responsibility to it, of course, because, you know, teaching them, okay, you're making this commitment to this thing. And so it's going to require some work to get a result that's, that's worthwhile. However, I want it to be a joy for them and I want it to be something that they can carry with them and that's something that will provide solace in their lives. And so I try to help them find that balance between hard work, and love. Hmm. Yeah. It is so interesting. I went to Tanglewood to hear Yo-Yo Ma and the, the goat rodeo, mm -hmm. and he spoke about um, wh what he hopes audiences take away. It sounded so much like what you're saying, Wayne, and the whole demeanor with which you say it, the caring, expressive aspiration that you're talking about 
There's another great cellist who seemed to be motivated by the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I imagine yeah. it's not a coincidence. Right. That's what this is all about. You know, I feel like we're so fortunate to, um, to have found, to be sustained by the thing that you would love to do. Like whether or not I'm paid for it, I would still play the cello or want to play the cello. Um, so I feel really fortunate to have found that kind of thing in my life at all, you know? Yeah. And you mentioned meditation before. What what kind of meditation do you practice, and and how does that practice impact your music making and your approach to music? Mm-hmm. Well, I practice vipassana meditation. Um, I was for the last most of the last ten years actually on the staff at um, the vipassana meditation center in Shelburne Falls, and uh, you know it's a type of insight meditation. Um, just observation of the body, observation of the breath, observation of whatever manifests in any given moment without judging it, and trying to use that practice as a way to develop equanimity in life and develop balance in the mind and develop concentration and develop, you know, acceptance without judgment, um, you know, not in a in a very active way, though, you know, sort of to be actively calm and that's really helped my practicing as a musician not only my performance but I think in the practice room is where we classical musicians at least and I you know do consider myself definitely primarily a classical musician it's where it falls apart because you're in this you know space where you are in a mental space where you're needing to constantly assess and essentially judge what it is that you're doing and determined yes yeah. yes and it's, you know, they say that, you know, classical musicians are always trying to do what they can't do, whereas jazz musicians happily share what they can do, you know. And um, it's, as a classical musician, it's, it ties a lot of knots. And the meditation really takes the edge off of that. And it allows some separation, you know, between what I might consider a musical failure. It allows me to see that that's not necessarily a story that I have to that, ha- that I have to use as a descriptor for who I am in any given moment. So it lets, basically it lets things fall off your back a little more easily and it helps keep calm and it helps with connection and performance. I feel like it helps with, it makes my intention as a performer more clear, you know, a sense of generosity, a sense of sharing, um, as opposed to any kind of exhibition. I feel like from meditation, I also spent a, quite a few, couple of years at least, um, busking and I feel, I feel like um, that kind of in-the-moment playing for people as they pass by, there seemed to be some correlation between that and meditation. It's just, it's just sort of letting things go when possible. I'm talking in some kind of pristine absolute. Of course, I'm always like, you know, beating myself up a little bit. But the meditation definitely is taking the edge off of that. And it makes, just me, makes me more apt to it's share. so interesting, Glenn. Last week, Ruth Griggs brought in Peter Blanchett. Mm-hmm. to end the year, and he was talking about his love of busking using almost the identical language that Wayne is using. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's it's a hard way to make a living, and you know, you're exposed to the elements many times, um, but it's, it's a immediate way of connecting to people, and in fact, we did uh, Arctic Moth a couple of summers ago, uh, outdoors in front of uh, Hungry Ghost Bakery in Northampton. Oh, yes. And uh, I, I love the idea that, you know, people randomly come upon the music without uh, intention. 
and um, take what they will from it. So uh, I, I love it's the a idea. gift. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, we're starting to wind down here. Um, are you going to be able to maintain your relationship with the Harlem uh, String Quartet and other other musical entities while you're doing your Broadway work? Yes, yes. It's the but just to be clear, it's the Harlem Chamber Players Chamber String Quartet, Quartet. Oh, yeah. which is different from the Harlem String Quartet. Okay. So I just wanted yeah. to clarify that. Yes, thank but, you. But yes, there is a lockout period in Broadway when a show begins where you are required to play all the services. But after May third, um, will be you can sub out quite a few of them. So fortunately, um, especially since two of us are in that show, we'll be able to you know have our rehearsals in the daytime and then sub out. Get, find substitutes on Broadway when we do have concerts. Mm-hmm. So Wayne Smith, thank you so much for joining us today. Glenn Siegel, thank you so thank much. You, for, Buzz. Oh, yeah. what thank you, Buzz. What a pleasure. I don't know what to say to a cellist. Break a finger? What do we <laughs> Let's <say>? not. <laughs> <laughs> but best of luck in your new gig. It sounds like it's well-earned, and, and it's an incredible play and incredible music, and uh, I'm sure you will play it as well as you've shared your, your views with us today. It's, uh, you're motivational. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Everybody else, tomorrow, Tracy Kidder will be here to discuss his latest book, Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, Rough Sleepers is the book. And after that, we'll be discussing The Good Thing with Jeff Napolitano, Social Justice in the Valley. See you tomorrow. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillicorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Live and local Get involved news and, and support talk our for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station.